Good morning, Missio. Hebrews 2, 10 through 18. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely that is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. It's good to have you. My name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here. I just want to welcome you. Um, Somewhere, if there's two things I wanted to highlight. If you filled out one of those volunteer cards but didn't get a chance to turn it in, there's a little basket there at the end where you can drop it off after the end of service. And somewhere around you is a welcome card. If you wanted to get more information, get connected to the community, you can fill that out and there will be someone to greet you and hang out with you at the table labeled Connect after service. So there's a few things. Uh, we are in part three of our series entitled At One where we are exploring the atonement of Jesus. This is what we just said, is the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the work of Christ to make us one with him. And the question that is sort of like leading this whole conversation, or the two questions that are sort of leading this whole conversation for us is, why did Jesus die? And why is it good news? Simple questions in some ways, and yet... I think as we begin to interrogate them and investigate them and even question our own assumptions about why Jesus died and why it's really good news, the whole world of beautiful answers begin to emerge. Now, over the last two weeks, we've been laying the groundwork for this conversation. Last week, we talked about how atonement is like the climax of a really good story. It's a story about us being image bearers who lived in oneness with God self, and others, and how the work of atonement, the thing that Jesus is doing, is to repair this hyper-relational distortion, what we call sin, of our image-bearing-ness, and to restore us, the oneness with God, self, and others. And then in week one, we just laid some big ideas, and the biggest one that we laid that I want to keep returning to over and over and over again is that on the cross, we see a perfect snapshot of God's nature character, and actions. So this has been the groundwork, the, the foundational kind of structure that we have been laying. And with that groundwork laid, today we are moving into a conversation about biblical descriptions of the atonement. We've said over the weeks that this is what we were going to get to eventually, and I just kept pushing it out so we could talk about other things. But here we are talking about biblical descriptions 
of atonement. These descriptions, these metaphors, these images show up all throughout the biblical story to help us understand what Christ is doing on the cross. So sometimes you'll hear language about redemption or language about scapegoats or language about carrying our sins. These are images that the writers of Scripture are using to help us understand what God is accomplishing. And today, we're going to look at our first set of biblical descriptions that I've labeled under the broad category of representation. So on the Christ, on the cross, somehow, Christ is representing us. And I've compiled a list of just like keywords here to help us understand different metaphors or images that are part of this story, representation. So maybe you've heard the language of substitute, that Christ is our substitute, or Christ is a mediator, intercessor, high priest from the text today, second Adam, brother, firstborn, firstfruit, becomes human in the incarnation. These different words, these different images, these different metaphors, they all speak to, in some ways, Christ becomes like us, with us, and for us. And on the cross, in his representation of us, something is happening on our behalf. Christ is serving some kind of representative, some kind of identification role, representing us in his work. This idea of representation is at the very heart of atonement. I said at the beginning of the series that we wouldn't look too much at theories of atonement. We'd stay in the world of biblical descriptions. And I'm uh, just immediately going to break that rule today. Uh, because I wanted to show you how representation plays out as a prominent theme in every major theory of atonement. We're just going to hit it really quickly. I've created this very fun graph. Tell me you don't love that. <laughs> and what I've done here is I've just tried to provide you a handful of the major atonement theories when they show up throughout Christian history, who's developing them, where they're pulling their resource from, and then what their major point is. In each of these theories, what we'll see is that this notion of God representing us is key. However, it looks a little different. It plays out in different ways with different nuances. So here's the first one. Ransom theory is one of our oldest Christian theories of atonement. It comes from Mark 10, where Jesus says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And the basis of this idea is that the Satan or the devil has somehow kidnapped humanity. And God exchanges their son as a bargaining chip in a ransom to rescue us and to release us. So we're kidnapped. Jesus is the representation of us, takes our place, pays our ransom. God gets his people. Satan gets Jesus. However, it's a big trick because Jesus is resurrected. Satan is left holding the bag. Not today, Satan. That's that theory. Pretty good. Number two, recapitulation theory. Say that three times fast. My friend Jeremy Duncan, who's a pastor in Canada, his description of this I think is the best. He says this is like the tech solution theory of atonement. The world isn't working. Humanity's not working. God calls the tech service line. He's like, hey, what do I do? And they're like, have you tried turning it off and then back on again? And so he does. And in Christ's death, the world is reset And we, in him, as our representative, receive a renewed, reset, on-off modem kind of life. Recapitulation theory. Jesus, in his death, represents us, and in his life, resets our own. 
Number three, moral influence theory. This comes a little bit later in history. And the premise of moral influence theory, coming from 1 John 4, that we love because God has so loved us, the idea here is that sin traps our thinking, our imagination. It holds us captive in a way that we can't break free of. And so Christ has come as the perfect moral representative. Yes, to show us what a holy, loving, good life looks like, but in that love to free us to have the capacity to love like Jesus. Sometimes it's downplayed is that Jesus is just a good moral example, but it's much deeper than that, that his moral love for us actually frees us to love like Jesus. So Jesus represents us in his faithfulness and his goodness. That leads to this next category, which is the one that most of us are probably the most familiar with. If you grew up in evangelical traditions, the way we talk about atonement tends to revolve around this category, what we call substitutionary theories. I made it plural because there is a lot of substitutionary theories. Not just one. I even put two different thinkers here, Anselm and John Calvin, because they have different ideas, different concepts about what Christ is substituting himself for. But at their basis, substitutionary theories revolve around this notion that Jesus suffers on our behalf the effects of our sin in our place. I'm going to leave it there because some substitutionary theories take that into different directions to different ends. But the basis of it all is that Jesus suffers the effects of our sin in our place. And that leads us to this last one, scapegoat theory, which is very similar, except it revolves around how Jesus' death on our behalf affects our heart. That in dealing with the effects of our sins on our behalf, Jesus reveals sin and most fundamentally reveals the love of God to us. But he dies in our place by the effects of our sin. So the reason I wanted to show you these theories very briefly is because in each of them, an essential component, an essential reality of every single one of these theories is that Jesus has died for us as a representative, identifying with us in some way. Now, they don't all lead to the same place, and I don't agree with them all fully. That's why we're not going to live in the category of theory. I don't believe that God has to negotiate with the devil. I feel like that means you're not God if you have to negotiate with the devil. And some versions of substitutionary theories present God as a bloodthirsty pagan deity who demands sacrifice. I don't think that's true. All throughout Scripture, God says, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your justice. I want your love. But I do think that in each of them, we see this theme that Jesus is somehow a representative for us. So what does it mean that Jesus represents us? What do the writers of Scripture mean when they say that Jesus is our substitute or our mediator or our intercessor? And there's two key ideas that I think come with this. The first one is this, that Jesus identifies with us so that we can identify with him. That at the core of our understanding of representation, these sets of descriptions and metaphors and images that are presented to us through Scripture, here's the key ideas. Jesus identifies with us so that we can identify with him. I'm going to break those two statements down 
and start with the first one. Jesus is our representative in that he identifies with us. One of the most beautiful, surprising, upside-down truths of our faith is that God became human. We sang it a lot today. The band chose songs that were really appropriate to today. And the writer of John 1, the Gospel of John, says it this way, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In theological language, we call this the incarnation, which literally means took on flesh or in flesh. God took on flesh. God moved into the neighborhood to be with, to be present, to be near us. In week one of this series, we said that God is just like Jesus, and the incarnation shows us that Jesus is just like us. It's this beautiful, strange equation that God is like us. And when we look at Jesus, we are seeing this strange, perfect, beautiful merger of divine and earthly realities. We see God perfectly represented. This is the image of the invisible God, as Hebrews says. And we also see ourselves perfected. The merging, this intercession, this mediation. In Jesus, humans and God are represented And the writer of Hebrews from the text that Amanda read for us today begins to tell us why. And it's so beautiful. In Hebrews 2, verse 17 through 18, the writer says this, Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way. This was so that he would become merciful and faithful as a high priest in things relating to God, to wipe away the sins of the people. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Why? Because he has suffered while being tempted. And the writer goes on in Hebrews 5 to add this just beautiful statement saying this, we have a high priest, Jesus, who can sympathize with our weakness because he was tempted in every way but was without sin. Jesus identifies with us. Jesus became fully human and experienced all that it means to be human in order to identify with us, to be merciful and empathetic. There is a kind of compassion and mercy and empathy that emerges when we have shared experiences. My wife and I have both, unfortunately, lost parents very young. I, when I was two and my wife when she was 21. And though those age groups are really different, two to 21, we've often said that we feel like we're in the same club. There's just something that, that, that is shared between us, even though the experience was quite different because we were still kids who had to figure out how to grow up without a parent. And so you feel like there's this kind of shared connection, this similar participation in a club. That's always the language we use. We're like in the same club. And whenever we meet someone who has likewise lost a parent at an early age, even if you don't talk about it, even if you don't share all the knowledge about it, it's like, oh yeah, we're in this thing together. There's something about our experience that unsaid and unnamed and unmentioned just unites us in some way. Like we're in the same club. I think in the same way, 
Jesus becomes human to enter the club of humanity. He experiences all that it means to be human, good, bad, the mundane, the beautiful. He has jobs, he has friends, he has siblings, he has parents, he goes to weddings, he pays taxes, he's gossiped about, he's betrayed, he experiences loneliness, sadness, fear, temptation. Jesus shares the same experiences that we do because he shares in our humanity. And here's my favorite part of the whole thing. Jesus shares in our experiences and then says this, this is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, that wrecks me. Jesus entered the world to be my brother and is not ashamed to call me one. I don't know if that means so much to me because my brother left when I was 11 and I haven't seen him since. So this just speaks to me very specifically. But he experienced humanness so that he could see mine and offer mercy and empathy and love. He sees my joys, my scars, my wounds, my struggles, my failures, not from a patronizing or condemning position, but eye to eye. Maybe it's just me that needs to hear this today, but Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you family. He's not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. He has experienced life like you and identifies with those experiences. He does not belittle our struggle or patronize our experiences. Instead, in shared experience from shared humanity, He offers empathy, connection, and help. Jesus identifies with us, is our representative to be kind. And that's what makes this moment so wild and so marvelous. Jesus identifies with us so much shared experiences, and our shared life, and our shared habits, that he would even endure the worst of us. The gospel writer of John, who introduced the idea of incarnation to us, goes on to say this about Jesus. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light, but the world did not recognize the light. The light came to his own people, but his own people did not welcome him. Last week, we defined sin as hyper-relational distortion of God's goodness, love, and intention. Hyper-relational because it moves in all directions. God and me, you and I, me and the world and the cosmos. Those relationships, that goodness is distorted. Sin distorts, corrupts, disrupts those right relationships. And throughout his life, and especially in his death, Jesus suffers the effects of sin. He suffers the effects of distorted image bearers. He suffers the effects of distorted love. He suffers the effects of that distorted and disrupted goodness. 
Jesus came to reveal the love of God, and we, humanity, writ large, rejected him. And in our rejection of Jesus, he became the representative of our destruction, of the destruction that we cause, and one who identifies with the effects of our sin. On the cross, Jesus suffers the worst of our sin. Our sin. The point that I'm making there is important. The religious institutions, the empire of Rome, the people in their wrath and their fear and their scarcity unleash the worst of them onto Jesus. Pastor Brian Zahn says it this way. I've always thought this was a beautiful quote. He says, the cross is shocking because it is the devastating realization that our systems of violence murdered God. Jesus identifies with our sin, the effects of our sin, carrying it in his body and suffering its full effect. And in enduring our sin, Jesus reveals it. He holds up a mirror to ourselves, revealing its full effect, its damages. And he shows us this in three different ways that I think are really important. He shows us the effects against God. As Brian Zahn just said, we murdered God. But he also shows us the effects of sin against ourselves and against others. Sin is hyper-relational. It moves in all directions. And so Jesus has to reveal it in all directions for this to be good news. And because Jesus identifies with us in all of our suffering, in all of our lives, he's able to reveal how our sin affects ourselves and others. There's this quote by a theologian named Jennifer Garcia Bashaw that I want to read to you. She says this, which I just think is so beautiful and so challenging about how Jesus reveals our sin against others. She says this, The Jesus who saved women from social shaming was himself shamed, stripped naked and publicly despised. The Jesus who healed the sick and disabled bodies himself became disabled. The Jesus who identified with the poor and the oppressed died the death reserved for the lowest criminal. Jesus, who changed outsiders to insiders, was pushed to the very edges of humanity to be ridiculed by strangers. Humanity unleashes its very worst, its fear, its wrath, its scarcity, its empires, and its empty religious institutions onto Jesus just the way it has on so many people before. And Jesus reveals it in his body. It's the reason that if you remember this story in Acts, when the Apostle Paul, before he becomes Paul, he's Saul, he's persecuting Christians. Jesus shows up to him and he says this, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What you do to these people, you do to me. I am revealing the worst of you. The way we damage, the way we scapegoat, the way we segregate, the way we push aside, Jesus reveals. Because, I don't know what that is. (laughs) Because Jesus identifies with us, his death as a substitute on our behalf 
experiencing the effects of our sin reveal sin all the way down. Now we sin against others. And in the same way, Jesus identifies, this is such a mystery to me, but in the same way, Jesus still identifies us when we are offenders, when we are the ones who are sinning, when we are the perpetrators and perpetuators of these systems. There's this beautiful moment in Mark 15, 28. It's talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And it says, And they crucified him with two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. This is from the King James Bible. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Because Jesus identifies with us all the way down, all throughout our humanity, in him we see the worst effects of our sin against God, against others, and even against ourselves. What happens when we degrade the image of God within us, the goodness, the love, the mercy of God within us? Jesus identifies with us. But because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, he also identifies with God on the cross. He identifies with us, but he also identifies with God. And so just as the cross reveals our sin and the pain that we cause, it also reveals God's love. Theologian Bradley Jersick says it this way. He makes a distinction between cross and crucifixion in his writing, and he says this. I use the word crucifixion to refer to the sinful act of evil men who tortured and murdered the Son of God. When I mention the cross, I have in mind the self-giving servant love of Jesus, in which his blood symbolizes his mercy and forgiveness poured out into the word into the world. In other words, the crucifixion is what we did. We took his life. The cross is what Christ did for us. He gave his life. On the cross, Jesus suffers the worst of us. He endures our hate, our rage, our fear, our sin. And he absorbs all of it into himself, and then he offers more of himself. Jesus takes our sin and exchanges it for his love. He takes our wounds and he exchanges it for his healing. He takes our shame and he exchanges it for the dignity in which he sees us. He takes our rejection and exchanges it for the welcome and return of God. I've told this story before. But it's, for me, maybe the most powerful personal illustration of atonement. When I was uh, 11, my mom remarried. And 11 has just got to be the weirdest age to come into a young kid's life. You're like, just hitting puberty. I'm listening to a lot of Linkin Park. I'm shopping at Hot Topic. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know, it's rough. It's hard to imagine, honestly. But I am... I am a preteen pop punk kid. I hate school. I am not afraid to tell you that you are not my dad. And I did. 
all, just all the time. My stepdad entered into one of the strangest, weirdest situations, but he always said, this is true, when he married my mom, when he proposed, that he was marrying both her and me. And that was his commitment. And that he was going to be my dad, and I made him earn it. Would fight and yell and scream. Would tell him he's not my dad. I ran away more than once, which they had to come and find me. When I got old enough and I could drive, I would just like take the keys and leave the house. He'd be like, don't go. And I'd be like, what are you going to do? And then I would just leave. But if you ask him, this is true, if you ask him what the worst part of being uh, a stepdad is, he'll answer very clearly, without any hesitation, math homework. <laughs> if you know me, you know I don't love math. I got a bunch of soft science degrees because I can't pass, count past 11. And he knew that and experienced that. And every night we would sit together and do math homework, and I would lose my mind. I would storm off, run into a different room, and then slowly, patiently come back to the table. And I tell you this story because my stepdad, who I just called dad, absorbed the worst of me. I threw at him everything that I possibly could to separate relationship, to make him not want to be my father. I was mean, I was cruel, I was selfish. I was also wounded and lonely as an 11-year-old who had lost his dad. And I just threw everything that I possibly could at him, self-defensively and selfishly. My sin is important to talk about hyper-relationally. It's not one thing. And he took it. He absorbed the very worst of me. And somehow, in his love for me, he was still delighted to call me his son. Still chose to adopt me. Still chose to be present in my life. There is a power to self-sacrificial love that does not coerce, that does not demand, that shows up, that absorbs, that endures, that gives again and again, that disarms us and the powers of sin and fear and woundedness that is often overwritten us. The love that we see on the cross is that kind of love, self-sacrificial, and it disarms us. It unmasks the power of sin, the power of death, and the fear and wounding that we hold to. So that we might know ourselves as we are. Loved image bearers. Rescued and restored by our good Father. This is why Jesus identifies with us. that he might be a merciful and sympathetic high priest. This leads us to our next big idea. Jesus identifies with us all the way down, even to the point of death, so that we can identify him with him all the way back up. Just as Jesus identifies with us, we 
identify with him. He is our representative. Sometimes theologians will call this idea the great exchange, that we receive in Jesus what is his. Other theologians will call it identification for the sake of incorporation, that God represents us to include us, to make us one. Atonement. And it means that because Jesus has identified with us, become our representative, when we look at Jesus, when we see him, we get to identify with him. And I wanted to, to talk about like all the ways this is true and all the places it shows up. But then I looked at all the moments this happens in Scripture, and the list is just too long. So I decided to just create a list of a handful of the places in which Scripture talks about us being incorporated in Christ or identifying with Christ. And it's too many things to talk about. These are just different moments. Unity in Christ, sanctified in Christ, new creation in Christ, redemption, oneness, freedom, justification, blessing, heirs with Christ, new life with Christ, future in Christ. This is a small, brief sampling of the examples that show up. Jesus, as our representative, exchanges his life for ours, taking our wrath, our shame, our wounds and pain and sin into himself and exchanging them for his life, his love, his healing, and his goodness. Because Jesus identified with us all the way to death, we can identify with him all the way to life. So theologian Bradley Jurisic describes it like this. Our identification with Jesus means inclusion with Christ in his death, inclusion with Christ in his resurrection life, the future, and inclusion with him in his resurrection life now, which is to say freedom from sin and a life of obedience to God. I absolutely love this last part. And I think it's the moment that we often miss when we talk about atonement. That our inclusion and our identification with Jesus is not only about some future hope. It is actually primarily about life now. In Jesus, we are receiving the power to identify with him now. To experience the renewing of life Now, to experience the restoration of being image bearers. Now, to experience the life of love that he preaches on the Sermon on the Mount. Now. That's why Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, or die to sin and death and live with me. Or Paul will say, clothe yourself with Christ. The invitation is to identify with Jesus now. In his life, in his healing, in his work, and in his way to live the way of Jesus, empowered by the life of Jesus. Because he's identified with us, we can identify with him. That's the great exchange of the cross. Jesus takes that part of us, the sin, the shame, the wounds, or the pain, and exchanges it for his love, his welcome. He reveals our sin as our representative, not to shame us, but to free us from its hold, not to condemn us, but to make us one with him, to include us in his. 
And so, Mr. this leads to a question I want to ask you today as we close. What do you need to exchange today? Jesus identifies with us so that we can identify with him, to exchange those parts of us, those experiences, those things. So what do you need and or want to give to Jesus? Maybe a trip to the cross is in order. And remember that he identifies with you not to shame you. He is not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. So we come with our wounds and our scars and our struggles and with an empathy of shared experience. Jesus sees them and takes them. And offers the healing, forgiveness, and wholeness that comes from his own scars. Demisio, what do you need to exchange today? Where do you need to see that Jesus identifies with you so that you can identify with him? Just take a moment to reflect on that question, and then when you're ready, would you bring it to this table? Where week after week, we do this very simple practice of receiving Christ as the bread and the cup. Receive what he has made available, to receive what is his, to be included at his table and at his family. It's most simple. This is why we gather at this table. Because Christ has identified with us that we can identify with him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that we can trust you. You've shared our experiences, shared our lives, not exactly the same way, but you're in the club with us. Because you've entered this club of humanity, you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Jesus, when we hear that said over us, that you are not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, but from a place of shared experience, you offer help. And so would we receive the help that you offer, make that exchange of the parts of our lives that have been painful or hurting or distorting the image-bearing quality of you in us? Would we offer those to you and receive the gift of your life, your love, your welcome, your wholeness? God, in your mercy, hear our prayer and make us whole. In your name we pray. Amen.